Welcome to Driven Minds. I'm Gigi, and this is a Type 7 podcast. Our guest today is the alpine skiing legend, Lindsay Vaughn. As a four-time World Cup winner, three-time Olympic medalist, Lindsay is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, ski racer of all time. A few years ago, HBO released the documentary, Lindsay Vaughn, The Final Season, which follows her story from child skiing prodigy up until her final competition in 2019. So for those interested in learning more about her or just watching a human being do impossible things, I highly recommend checking it out. One thing I want to mention quickly is that you'll hear us talk about a woman named Peekaboo Street. For anyone who doesn't follow skiing, Peekaboo Street is also a champion skier and Olympic gold medalist who, as you'll hear, had a big impact on Lindsay. So here it is, my conversation with Lindsay Vaughn. Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Yeah, schon. Wie hast du Deutsch gelernt? How do you know German? <laughs> I learned German because I was, you know, always in Europe. I was in Europe since I was nine years old. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to be able to communicate with people my age. And, you know, I was like, I came home from my first camp and I was like, why can't I talk to anybody? <laughs> and my dad's like, well, you know, if you want to be able to speak to them, you have to learn German. I'm like, okay, well, let's do it. So it took me a while, but I got it. When I read that you were fluent, it was so mind-boggling to me because I've been based part-time in Berlin for five years, and I'm still on my A-level. So can you please explain how you managed to speak one of the most miserable languages to learn while skiing professionally full-time? Well, you're always around it, so it wasn't you know weird. Uh-huh. I was able to practice all the time. My coaches were Austrian, so it wasn't like a big deal. Like I always heard it. So I think when you're around it all the time, it becomes so much easier, as opposed to learning in class when you're not really around anyone and yeah, and you're like just reading from a textbook and a totally different situation. You were living in the Alps during this time, and you were already a serious skier. But I'd love to hear a bit about how you got to that point. You grew up in Minnesota. You started skiing by the time you were three. When did you know that you stood out as a skier? I mean, I didn't know that I was really that good until I was probably 11 or 12. Still young. It was the only thing that, you know, I was really good at. I tried a lot of other sports like soccer and figure skating. I have no idea why I tried figure skating. I had to do that too. My dad saw me like after two lessons and he's like, yeah, we're going to, we're just going to try something else. (laughs) No triple axel for you. No, no, (laughs) there was none of that happening. Gymnastics as well. They're like, you are way too tall because I grew really fast at a really young age. I was super uncoordinated and they're like, yeah, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna work for you. So and I just wasn't good at anything else. And I, and I always loved skiing. And I had only place I had good friends. And then I started to really get better and better. And, you know, once I realized that that's what I wanted to do when I met Peekaboo Street when I was nine, you know, then I really started to get more competitive. And when I was 12, I remember coming down from a race in Minnesota and, you know, all these girls are like 16, 17 years old and they're crying. I was like, dad, why are, why are these girls crying? And he's like, because you kicked their ass. (laughs) I felt bad. I was like, oh, no, I'm making these girls cry. And then I was like, maybe I'm kind of good at this. So I think that was kind of the moment when I realized. What was it about meeting Peak Boo Street when you were nine that solidified your path for you in a way? It was 
just seeing someone in real life that I could say that's what I want to be at. Because before I didn't really know, know, I enjoyed skiing. I had a lot of friends, but I didn't really know what it meant tangibly. Like there wasn't anything tangible that I could really latch on to. And when I met her, I was like, okay, you know, this is, I could do this. And all these people are waiting in line to meet her. Like this is something special that if I worked hard, I could do that. And so that was just a really big eye opener for me. And I think it was a combination of her personality was great. And then again, just being able to really see something in real life that you could aspire to. And did you gravitate towards skiing because you were just better than everyone else and you loved the adrenaline and the feeling of winning? Or was it something more than that that started you on that path? I think I just gravitated towards it because it was something that my dad really loved. Okay. So it was like a father-daughter kind of bond. Yeah. We really bonded over that. And he wanted to be a racer and, and he blew out his knee when he was 18 that's kind of what ended his career. And so I think he was definitely living a little vicariously through me. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he, he started me skiing when I was two and a half. And, you know, it was something that we always did together. And before I was skiing, I was actually in his backpack on his back while he was coaching because <laughs> he was going to law school and coaching to make money on the side. We were something we always did together. And, you know, it helped encourage me to stay with it, I think, at times when it was really, really cold in Minnesota because it was just something that we could do together. Have you ever read Outliers? Yes. By Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah. It reminds me just of that, how environment and context is so integral to these professional athletes and the people that, you know, are at the top of their game in whatever industry. Their environment is so integral to becoming who they are. So... You know, it made sense reading your book as well, seeing how the environment was perfect. Everything came together for you to become Lindsey Vaughn. I definitely think there's a lot of things that came together at at the right time for me. I think, you know, just me being in that sport at that time, where we lived, you know, because of my coach and the hill and I got 10,000 hours and Mm -hmm. that was great. But I think if I were, maybe if I would have started in the mountains though, maybe it would have been even better. I don't know. <laughs> but it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, I have read that book too. And it, it you know, I've definitely made me think about how much environment impacts your, just how you were raised and, you know, how it affects your long-term outlook on life and your ability to be successful. When did the Olympics become a realistic goal for you? I mean, they were my goal since I met Peekaboo. You know, when I met Peekaboo, I said, I want to be peekaboo. I, I want to be an Olympian. And okay. that's kind of right around the time they announced the Salt Lake City Olympics in 2002. And so my dad and I sat down, I think it was literally that day, and we made you know a 10-year plan of how to make it and what races I would need to go to and kind of what ranking and like when I would need to make the U.S. ski team. And, and uh, it was a pretty detailed goal and, and really timeline of the next 10 years. I mean, I honestly didn't even know that I would make it until a few months before the games because I was still only 16, you know, at the beginning of that season. And, right. you know, there were a lot of really good skiers on the team at the time. So it was kind of a last minute decision whether whether I would race or not. So it really came down to the wire. But yeah, it was a very long run up and uh, a long term goal to be able to get there. That's for sure. It's so intense. I can't imagine my dad sitting me down at what? Like, how old were you? I was nine. I mean, it's amazing. Like, I can't imagine if my dad sat me down when I was nine and was like, okay, this is like your 15-year plan. I would feel suffocated. Did you feel enlivened by this conversation? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm the one that sat him down. Oh, okay. I was like, Dad, this is what I want. How do I get there? And he's like, okay, well, this is going to be really hard. Are you ready? Yeah. Like, I am ready. Sign me up. What do I, gotta, what do I have to do? So I, I didn't feel smothered at all. I was the one really instigating everything. I was the one that was, you know, always pushing. And crazy. I was really critical of myself. And I think the goals, you know, at that age, even though I was really young, was good for me to kind of have a checkpoint of, you know, am I staying on track and, you know, making the right decisions, not just for skiing, but, you know, in life, you know, is this helpful to my goal? You know, how do I become better at where, you know, what I want to achieve? And that's not really something you think about. I think most, as as far as I've seen, especially my siblings, it's not really what you think about at that age. So where do you think this determination came from and this, these blinders that you seem to have been born with through which you saw your goal? I don't know. I'm really just a very competitive person. (laughs) I've been, I don't know. I've always kind of been a leader and, you know, someone that's determined. And, you know, if I see something that I want, you know, there's nothing that's going to stop me. And, And also I think, there's an element of, you know, if you tell me I can't do something, mm. I will absolutely do it. And I will do anything I can to prove you wrong. Fuel for the fire. Yeah. I, I'm really motivated by things like that. And someone actually recently asked me, are you a champion that loves to win or hates to lose? And I always thought I was the loves to, mm. to win person. And then I really thought about it. And I was like, no, I, I really hate to lose I passionately hate losing and I passionately hate it when I can't do something that I want to do. So that's kind of always been within me and a a really driving force in, you know, how I approach skiing and and also life. If you get third place, do you consider that winning or do you consider I could have gotten first? Like, can it always be better? Is the grass always greener? Could you have always done more? I mean, the answer is yes. I could have always done more. (laughs) There's definitely, there's no doubt about that. So you don't give yourself a break. No, but I think the answer, you know, definitely how I perceive third place over time has changed. Mm. You know, I think later in my career when I had gone through so many injuries, I had a different perspective because it took me so much more. I had to work so much harder just to get to that point. Right. And so I think I gave myself a little bit more of a break (laughs) later on in my career, but I always knew that it could be better. Even if I won, you know, I knew it could be better. That's, that's just the nature of the sport. And you have to always look at it in that way. If you want to continue to improve, because if you are satisfied in what you've done and you, you think that that's the best there is, then you'll never get better. What were some of the sacrifices you had to make in order to get to the Olympics? And are there any that in hindsight, you wish you did differently? I mean, there were so many sacrifices. I mean, I had no life, you know, I I really had no life growing up outside of skiing. I have three friends. I still, they're still my best friends to this day, but you know, I I didn't do anything in high school. You know, I was always the person that was in bed by nine o'clock. I maybe went to like two, you know, high school parties, you know, I, that life wasn't, what I lived, you know, I didn't live a normal high school life. I never went to college. I don't really regret it, but I wish I had gone to college because I think Mm. I'm someone, you know, that's very determined. So if I want to learn something, you know, I, I enjoy that process and that challenge. And I think, 
you know, in this stage of my life, I've taken that into business and venture capital and investing and all of those things. But I think I would have really enjoyed going to college, but I don't regret anything. Even my mistakes led me to where I got to, you know, I, I think gave me different perspective. If everything is smooth sailing and it lines up perfectly and it's, you know, never face obstacles, I think you have a completely different outcome. You have a different perspective. You have a different work ethic. So I have no regrets in my life. It's so funny to me to hear you mention college or not going to college because I have so many friends that chose college during that slim window of time where they could have turned pro in whatever it was that they were pursuing, whether it was turning down a role for a movie or modeling, or I do have an athlete friend that had that slim window and chose college instead. And they're the reverse of you. They wish they never went. College is actually their one regret because you can always go back. And if you dedicated three years, even to a college or four years to a college ski team, I mean, you would not be Lindsay Vaughn, no? No, I totally agree. I mean, I, again, I, I wouldn't have changed what I did for anything. Yeah. And if I would have gone to college, my career was over. You know, it, especially in ski racing, that's just, you know, a fact yeah. of our sport. Unfortunately, you know, there is a limited window in which you, you know, can make it to the elite level and you have to continue to be focused on that instead of, it's not like swimming where you go to college and then you go to the Olympics. It's just, it's the opposite. Right. I wish I just would have had the experience at some point of my life, but I feel at my age, I think I'm just a little bit past the the time limit. So, oh my God, go back. You'd be the most popular person on campus. Like, what's up, guys? <laughs> Rebel Wilson in high school, just like reliving my life. Everyone would be like, I'm in class with Lindsey Vaughn. Yeah. Well, I took I took some classes at, you know, Harvard. I uh, just did like a four-day Never heard of it. executive education. <laughs> I know. Everyone that's gone to Harvard, you know that they've gone to Harvard. Because <laughs> they'll tell you. <laughs> I went to school in Cambridge. That's my favorite line. It's like, okay, cool. I see you. <laughs> But I, I, you know, I think doing like short, you know, executive education programs or things yeah. like that is something that I enjoy doing because, you know, it's short and I get some experience and I, yeah. I just like meeting people and I think it's fun and, you know, informative and challenging, but I don't have to do the whole, the whole shebang. I watched the documentary on you, the final season, and I had to cover my eyes watching the crash reel, <laughs> wondering how a human being could survive these falls, what goes through your head as you're crashing? I kind of just try to stay relaxed. I mean, when you know you're going down, it's an inevitable thing. And sometimes if I can see where I'm falling, I try to think about positioning my body in a way that's not going to, you know, hopefully tear something or, you know, you don't want to run into something Um, like a tree, for example, those are bad. (laughs) But, you know, generally you kind of just give in to the crash and try to stay relaxed. And and then at the end, you know, you open your eyes and you're like, is everything okay? Right. You know, you let the dust settle and then you, I check every body part and kind of do a checklist starting from my knees because that seems to be my biggest issue. And then hopefully I get up. But for as many big crashes as I've had, I've had a lot of you know, similar ones where I've actually, you know, walked away and it's a really humbling feeling, but it's also when you can walk away, you feel like you have been given another chance, you know, so you feel like, 
you know, kind of reinvigorated in a way. And like you beat death. Yes, exactly. I'm like, okay, I get another chance. I'm not out. (laughs) I'm not out. I'm not down. I'm back up. Do you live your life differently after these crashes or do you have any new life perspective after having survived something that you almost didn't? Yeah. I just think, you know, you have to seize every opportunity. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen in life, you know, when things will change. Right. And I always look at the positives, you know, every day is an opportunity. Like my mom said, you know, every day is a great day and you have to really, truly seize it. When I'm tired, when I'm, you know, not motivated, I, I always think of that. I'm like, this is a blessing that I have today and I need to use it. And every time I've crashed, it's the same thing. I'm like, okay, I have another chance, you know, get back out there and and do it again. I think keeping that perspective is what also helps keep me motivated. Right. You know? I mean, one of the things that I can't wrap my mind around in general, which I think is amplified with high intensity sports, is that if you have fear or any semblance of self-doubt and you get inside your head, you start ruminating, that's when you tend to make mistakes. And I experience this whenever I have to perform in any way. I overthink things, psych myself out, and end up making the exact mistake that I was dreading. But my life is never at risk like yours is. So how do you go into a race or even practice with the pressure of knowing that one fall could end your career and that you've fallen so many times before? Well, just as you said, the more you think about the things that could go wrong, that's usually what will go wrong. You will yourself that way, yeah. Yes, and, you know, even just small things from, you know, in training, working on something technical, like I need to keep my hands up. Oh, is that a thing? Yeah, because sometimes, you know, you drop your hands and it's it's a thing. It throws off your balance. Oh, okay. A lot, when I was a kid, I would say, okay, don't drop your hands, don't drop your hands, and then I always drop my hands. And, you know, I learned early on from a coach, I don't remember who told me it, but... You can't think of what not to do because you will do it. And so no matter what it is, I always think of what I need to do, you know, in a way, in an affirmative way that I'm that I'm going to do it. And the same rules apply, you know, for crashing um, and things like that. It's just not something you can think about. And it's not something really that I ever did think about because I always felt prepared. You know, I was right. I was there to win. You know, I, I'm not thinking about all the things that could go wrong because Honestly, if if I were thinking that, I would be in definitely the wrong sport because there are so many things that could go wrong and and they have gone wrong in my (laughs) life. (laughs) But I just have the perspective every time in the starting gate, I want to win and I focus on the things that will help me get there. Right when you're going through the starting gate, are there any rituals or good luck (laughs) uh, routines or anything you do to get yourself on the right foot or do you have none of that and just speed through the gate? I have like different breathing techniques, you know, if I, it depends on kind of how I feel. Sometimes I'll be too anxious and I'll have to kind of calm myself down and do some deep breathing. Sometimes I'll be maybe a little flat and tired and I'll have to, you know, breathe quicker and kind of psych myself up. Right. But when I'm actually in the starting gate, you know, where your poles are over the starting wand for like 20 seconds and sometimes 30. And that's a, honestly a really long time to be standing there. Yeah. And it's just way too much time for me to think. And so usually what I do is I just do this weird thing with my poles. If you ever watch me race, I do this. I did. Yes. I was always wondering, like, what? What is she doing? <laughs> I, By the way, just looks very professional because obviously I ski recreationally. So for me, I was like, oh, this is like what the pros do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so you had everyone fooled, just as you know. So what was that? 
it's just like my little quirk and my thing that kind of I, you know, I can do. It's like it's not really a tick, but more of a a cue in my mind where it's taking up the time so I'm not thinking about things that I shouldn't. But it's also like a cue for me that it's time to race, you know, it's it's like amping me up. Mm-hmm. And I also am weird with how I like my hands to feel in the pole. So uh-huh. once I got it right, then I stuck on to it. But I don't know. I just started doing that when I was younger and it it stuck with me and it worked. Well, you started winning. So now... <laughs> when you're winning, you just don't change anything. Just exactly. Like, just don't change it. Exactly. So was there any dread when you didn't do that? I can't remember a time where I didn't do it. That's so interesting. I literally can't remember. I don't even know when I started it. Yeah. But I know that as soon as I started, I never stopped doing it. And, you know, for the last six years of your career, you were living injury to injury. And that was so hard to watch in the dock. Every time when you woke up from an operation, your first question would be, when can I get back out there? I was just like, who is she? (laughs) I just could not compute that one injury. I would have been like, okay, this is a sign I'm gone. How did you get your confidence back each time and find the gumption to get back out there? Not to mention push through incredible physical pain. Again, I just think it really comes down to perspective and how you view it. You can view injury as, you know, a major setback that you can never come back from, or you can look at it as an opportunity to get stronger and you know, you're kind of almost starting from a clean slate because your muscles all gone, you know, you've been away from the sport, you kind of start with the basics, you know, you can fix certain maybe mechanical things that you weren't doing well before you you really you kind of can start from ground zero and build your way back up, which can be a really positive thing. But I think I always had that perspective because of my mom, Um, Mm. you know, she had a stroke when she had me and kind of ruined her ankle function. So she couldn't run, you know, she, she had really poor balance. And, you know, I always had this perspective that, you know, my mom couldn't come back from what, you know, had happened to her in her life, but I had the luxury and the opportunity to fight and try to overcome my injuries because they were just injuries. They weren't permanent. Right. And again, it's, I love what I do. You know, I wanted to be back out there and I had a clean slate. I had an opportunity to get back out there and, and I just seized it. When you mentioned that you found strength in starting from scratch and retraining your muscles, rebuilding your body strength, it seems like you don't really give yourself any credit because for so many people, including myself, starting from zero would not really be a fresh slate. (laughs) So few people would keep going after that. So I really find it incredible. And the way you talk about it is just so nonchalant, but I'm just, (laughs) my mind is slowly being blown. Do you have any tips for cultivating resilience for the rest of us plebeians? Or is there a phrase that gives you confidence or something you return to? I think it really comes down to, you know, finding what you're passionate about, like what triggers motivation for you, Mm -hmm. you know, what gets you up and excited every morning Mm -hmm. and, you know, how do you magnify that passion? How do you use that as a driving force in your life when times are tough? Mm -hmm. Because everyone has their obstacles and you have to, in those moments, be able to look to something to help you keep going you know, instead of crumbling and quitting, you have to want to work hard for something. And I think having goals in my life since, you know, a young age really helped drive me, helped motivate me, helped give me perspective. And when you look 
kind of at what's happening around you and where you want to go, you know, you, you have, I know inherently just a different perspective and, you know, you realize life isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think that life could be so much worse. Yeah. You know, every time I was injured, I said, it could have been a lot worse. You know, I could have broken my neck. I could have blown both my knees out. I could have broken both of my legs. You know, I Jesus. I escaped this. You know, this is a win. You know, I am yeah. happy that I walked away with just one blown out knee, you know. So I think it's, you know, figuring out what drives you, using that mm-hmm. as a as a force to to motivate you and and also having the perspective of life is good no matter how bad it gets. Life is still good and I can s- still keep moving forward. This is a basic question, but what is it exactly about skiing that motivates you? Is it the adrenaline? I mean, I'm assuming you're an adrenaline junkie, or is it the idea that you're going at superhuman speeds with no shell besides your ski gear? Or what is it about skiing? I think it's a combination of those things. I mean, I am definitely an adrenaline junkie. I mean, (laughs) I love it. You know, I love risk and, but it's also calculated risk. You know, I'm, I'm not going to go free soloing. Like that ain't ever going to happen. Like that's just crazy to me. Right. But in something like free solo, he's calculated everything to him. It feels like, you know, this is not as dangerous as you think it is. Right. Angela Duckworth's a good friend of mine and she wrote the book grit and she's done like MRIs on on people, you know, who don't have fear. (laughs) And she's like, I want to do a study on you because it's, Oh wow. I don't have the same response that most people do. And I thrive off of, you know, risk and adrenaline and speed and all of those things. Like those things really excite me. And and I think that's the one thing that's been really hard, you know, in retirement is that I don't have that, you know, that thrill isn't there anymore. And so it's kind of been a hard transition to not have that. But I found like working out and, and you know, doing kind of physical exertion, that kind of thing has helped me to kind of get some of that emotion or pent up energy out, but nothing will ever be, you know, what ski racing was. That's why I, and I always knew that I would, once I retired, it wouldn't be there. And again, that was part of the perspective, you know, I want to enjoy this while I can, because I don't know how long it'll, it'll last. Well, I heard you do still ski through the trees. I maybe do. <laughs> I still crash too. I'm not fully buying your narrative of, you know, how are you fighting adrenaline when you're when you're still doing that? I mean, I used to ski through trees when I was younger and going probably a 50th of the speed that you do and I still can't believe that I ever did that with no helmet and everything. I mean, I No helmet, but that's that's uh, you have to wear a helmet. That's crazy. I know it was stupid. I was 13 and wanted to be cool. We all make mistakes. Curious how you find adrenaline in your life now. <sighs> It's not the same. Um, tennis is, it's like I get a little bit of competitive thrill out of it, even though I'm horrible at it. And It's the best game. It's fun. It's so fun. And I still enjoy skiing and I enjoy, enjoy it with my friends. And I, you know, through the trees once in a while is, is we see helpful you. for me. <laughs> yeah, it just gives you that, that rush of death quickly. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. 3 p.m. pick me up. I went hel- heli skiing in Iceland at one in the morning and, and that was that was good. That held me over for a little bit. So I just try to find little things like that, you know, that Crazy. I can do that are fun and exciting and, you know, help me express my adventurous side. I also read that you were dealing with insomnia throughout your career. And as a fellow insomniac, I feel this condition is not treated seriously. And I find the anxiety of not sleeping the night before I know I have to be my best or perform in some way 
is so high that I just end up not sleeping. It's a real character builder, insomnia. But (laughs) what was going through your mind when you were lying in bed, unable to get to sleep, knowing you had to race the next day? I mean, you just keep looking at the clock. And the more I keep looking at the clock, the more I know that I'm not going to get enough sleep. And the more I know I'm not going to be able to perform my best. And it's just kind of this downward spiral that just seems like it's never ending. And, you know, not sleeping is something that everyone's like, oh, it's not a big deal. You didn't sleep well, you know, take a nap later, you know, you're fine. It's a killer. Yeah. And I think also a lot of people that do have insomnia also write it off themselves and say like, that's just kind of a part of life. Mm. I think for as an athlete, you know, I always, I knew that it was a problem and wanted, I wanted it to be better. I just didn't really know what to do. And I tried a lot of things and, you know, obviously not watching TV in bed and, you know, what I ate before I went to sleep to try to help and, you know, tried, you know, different vitamins and, you know, all sorts of different things. And at least one part of my life I can check off is like, I am good now. Oh, you recovered. Yeah. I feel great. I'm like so much more rested. And- She's a Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> I mean, I can say I'm still not a great morning person. I think I'm just not wired that way. Same. I think that I'm I'm wired as like a middle of the day person. Like 11 to 3 is really my like prime zone. So what would you do when you saw that like 3.45 a.m. on the digital clock and you knew that you'd have to get up at 6 to race? I mean, how would you manage that? Well, it's part of the reason why I would do such an extensive warm up in the morning is because, you know, I would be so tired sometimes. And I knew that I had to do something to wake my mind up because racing at 85 miles an hour on a mountain while you're, you haven't slept and your brain's not working doesn't really, doesn't really work. You know, it's not, it's not ideal. And, you know, I would try to take, you know, naps and things like that and just struggling to find a way to accumulate the amount of sleep that I needed for my brain to really function. Mm. But I'm happy that at least the beginning of part of my career, I didn't have that problem. It just became a big problem when I had my injuries because of the recovery and the the pain medication and everything. I just would have extreme anxiety that I needed to sleep to recover for my body to heal. And also like just being in pain, like when you're in pain, it's a different feeling, you know, trying to sleep when, when I tore my MCL, I had to sleep with this machine called the CPM and it would literally move your leg back and forth, you know, all night long. And it's propped up and, you know, my, my butt would be asleep, you know, like it was just the most uncomfortable thing ever. And I kind of got in a pattern of, of just not sleeping because I was so uncomfortable and so much pain. And I feel like after that, I never really got back on track until now. So I'm thankful I don't have to deal with that anymore. When was the first time you felt anxiety? I think as an athlete, it's something that you kind of deal with inherently, you know, in any competition. And so I feel like my biggest competition that I had as a junior was when I was 12 in Italy. It was, it's like the largest international ski race called Topolino. I remember my dad said, anyone that wins this race has gone on to win a world cup. No pressure. No pressure. Just, you know, sliding that one in there. And so I really knew the magnitude of that. And I I also knew the magnitude of of all of my races because I knew that I had to complete each step to be able to get to the Olympics. In a lot of ways, I've kind of always dealt with it. Just sometimes I'm able to deal with it better than others. And I think I have a really 
good way of compartmentalizing things to be able to deal with it mm. and to put things in perspective, but it's not an easy road and it, and it's kind of been one of trial and error. I never had, you know, a psychologist or a sports psychologist, you know, a lot of athletes nowadays have that. And I, right. I just really had to figure it out on my own, you know, how do I control myself enough to be able to handle the pressure and not let this, you know, take a hold of me because I, I have had races where I was so nervous that I, I just froze up entirely. And what happened during those times when you froze up? I, it's terrible. Like either I crashed or I was in- right. incredibly slow and then it was a huge disappointment and it was, you know, just the media ate me alive. But again, I, you know, I have to, that's my job as an athlete is to be able to figure out a way to deal with it because right. if you want to be a champion, there's there's no champion in the world at any sport that doesn't have pressure or anxiety. Yeah, You know, that's just something that is kind of a prerequisite. So I feel like I figured it out pretty well. But I think then once I retired, it was, I was like, okay, I don't have ski racing. It's kind of like this mechanism for me to control, you know, how I feel. And and then that's when I really needed to really have a lot of therapy and figure out, you know, how as a person, not as a ski racer, I can manage myself and take care of myself in a way that's healthy. And when did you start therapy? I really started therapy like 2020, 2019. Um, not long after we retired, mm-hmm. I was doing kind of normal talk therapy for a while and that didn't, it didn't really work. Um, I just felt like I was complaining a lot to someone it's like, I'm just talking, but like, what's the solution? You know, like, where am I going with this? Tell me what I can do to manage things, you know, besides coming and talking to you, like, what's the goal, you know? And so then I started working with Dr. Armando Gonzalez, call him Dr. Mondo. And he is a totally different type of therapy and, you know, really leaning into kind of the emotions and the anxiety and the things that you feel and you experience them in a way where your brain can process them. Is this also talk therapy? No, it's a totally, I don't even know what you classify it as. (laughs) What's it called? He calls it spot therapy. Um, It's a type of way of reestablishing the neurological pathways in your brain to be able to kind of process different things that have happened in your life through talking no it's you literally stare at a spot on the wall oh literally spot therapy like a literal translation okay yes and you sit there and you think about you know something that has given you anxiety or pain or sadness and you sit there you know for long periods of time just really thinking about it and processing it and and scientifically it does something in your brain where you're able to compute it a lot of And he's actually said, you know, you're the only athlete that I've ever come in contact with that doesn't have some sort of stored trauma from injury. He's like, I have never experienced anything like this. You just don't have it. I'm like, I literally don't. There's not, there's no baggage to unpack here. I, I'm fine. I got injured. I got hurt. I watched my crashes. You know, I came back. This is, you know, this is what it is. It doesn't traumatize you when you watch them? No. Nothing. You're like, that's me. That's me. Just almost dying. Yeah. I'm like style points mm, eight, you know, (laughs) could have been cooler. Oh my God. It really changed my life and, you know, changed how I view things. And this has been a really hard year. My, my dog passed away. My grandma passed away. My mom just passed away. And so sorry. So I've really had to think about things in a different way and, and use, you know, the tools that he's given me to be able to process it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what I think everyone needs is 
to find the tools that they need to be able to Mm. cope with different things that they're experiencing in their life, whether it be depression or anxiety, uh, you know, whatever it is to be able to say, okay, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I need to do to recenter myself, to process this, you know, to be able to function and be a healthy person. And I think the, the issue mainly is that no one has the tools. And is spot therapy your primary tool or have you turned to any other resources that have helped? No, now that, now that I've done that type of therapy, I really know, you know, how to really think about things and experience them. You know, the worst thing that you can do is to pretend like your emotions don't exist, Mm -hmm. you know, which is, I'm really good at that. I was so (laughs) good at that. I was like a professional, like, you know, slide over my emotions and forget that they existed. Yeah. But that's really the, one of the worst things that I could do is not feel things. You know, I think it's important to feel them in the moment and, right. you know, let yourself feel them, be vulnerable. And you're able, at least I'm able to really process it then and move forward, understand it. And, you know, it's, it's really a, a way of self-reflection mm. to look inside yourself and say, okay, what am I experiencing? You know, how am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? You know, how do I, yeah. how do I move forward from there? And so I, I feel like, again, I've, I've been given the tools through Dr. Mondo and now I can journal, I can, you know, self-reflect, I can do my own spot therapy and, um, I can always call Mondo when I need him, yeah. which I have in the last <laughs> few weeks. But, you know, again, I think it's, most people just don't have the tools. And I wish I'd had these tools earlier in life. I think I could have done a lot more, maybe not in skiing because I knew how to handle things in skiing, but just as a person, as a human being, you know, how to handle different life experiences. I think I could have done a better job. Well, what surprised me is you've also been really open about struggling with depression throughout your entire career. And for many people, depression means they have a hard time getting out of bed and competing at the highest level of a sport would be just unimaginable. Were you able to keep skiing in spite of the depression or was it the inverse in that skiing helped alleviate the depression? Skiing definitely helped a lot. You know, skiing was something that gave me so much joy that forced me out of bed, you know, sometimes. And I think I really, you know, hit a low point when during my injuries, you know, when I'm stuck in bed, when I can't do what I love, you know, it just really sets in, in a, in a very dramatic way. And, you know, sometimes my physical therapist, Lindsay would literally, you know, rip the covers off me and, you know, open the curtains and pull me out of bed. Right. And again, I really had to think so hard and sometimes it worked and sometimes I didn't, you know, during those times, but, you know, I'm focused on doing what I love to do. And that's all I thought about is like, I have to get up. I have to get up. And then getting a dog was the best thing that happened to Mm. me because it forces you to get up. You know, some, you have something relying on you, someone relying on you, they will not survive if you don't feed them, you know? So totally, I found so much comfort in my dogs. Um, and that's why at the end of my career, I started traveling with my little dog, Lucy, because it's so lonely on the road, you know, I I had the joy of skiing that helped me so much. Right. But then, you know, no matter how well you do, you still come home, you know, to an empty hotel room and you've got no one there. And, you know, as much as I love my team, you know, my friends and you're still alone away from home and, and it's, it's not a great feeling. So finding things like my dogs and, and skiing and different things to hold on to, really helped me in those in those difficult times. 
What was it like having the high of a wind so close to the low of being isolated in a hotel room? It's interesting. And, and I think the swing of it is also what's difficult is, is managing the volatility. The volatility is, is really hard. And also, you know, I had a season when I was getting divorced while I was racing and, you know, I would win. I won, you know, three races in a row and it was so great. And then I'd come back and I'm like talking to my dad about, and my divorce attorney. And it's like, and then I'm driving by myself for five hours, you know, to the next location. And it just was such a huge swing. I mean, the lows were really low. And I think that's one thing that actually helped me ski faster is because I saw those high moments Mm. because I had to have something to get me out of that feeling. You know, I I wanted to feel better. And that was, at that time, the only thing that made me feel better. I mean, that also astounds me because heartbreak or any sort of relationship issue is so all-consuming for me personally. It's just like doom and gloom city everywhere I look. And it makes it so hard to focus. But, you know, you did. You divorced your husband and won the World Cup. You were estranged from your father and won the Olympic gold in Vancouver. And then you had a breakup in the public eye with Tiger Woods and you still kept racing. I mean, correct me if any of that timeline is incorrect, but how are you able to compartmentalize your relationships so they did not impact your skiing? I mean, I had to. Right. I had to figure it out. It's, it was either, you know, I can sit there and cry about it or, you know, I have to figure a way through it. And, you know, there'd be times when I was literally crying 30 minutes before I'm going to the start of my race. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. My goggles are fogged up. You know, I'm just bawling my eyes out. And then I would kind of internalize it and say, I don't need anyone to make me happy. And I'm the only person that's going to win this race. I think Mm. skiing gave me this confidence. I didn't have the same confidence Mm -hmm. as a person. You know, I think as a racer, you know, I was extremely confident and it wasn't until later in life that I really morphed those two things together. Mm. But I had, it was like an alter ego and I, I put on, you know, this invisible cloak and I was incredibly strong and, and I just had to find a way to be that person. And I can't say it worked all the time. There are definitely times where I was like, just not focused. And I, I wasn't able to compartmentalize it as well as I should have, but still my best seasons were seasons where I was dealing with extreme heartbreak or extreme drama in some way, shape or form in my personal life. And it's interesting, you know, in the World Cup, everyone got frustrated with me because they're like, you're so dramatic and, you know, all these things are, you know, you're getting so much media and, you know, so much attention. I'm like, do you think that I want this attention? Right. There's nothing more in the world that I want less yeah. than this, you know? All I want to do is ski race. And I, I didn't really feel like I also had a lot of support from people that I was racing against as well. And, and so it was just, a lot of a lot of difficult years, but I, I I can say that you know generally speaking, I I always enjoyed it because I was doing what I love to do, and and I always felt that no one can take that away from me. You know, no matter what I'm dealing with in my life, no one can take away the feeling of skiing down a mountain at 85 miles an hour. I always had that. That's my rock. You know, that's my happy place. Right. And so again, when I retired, (laughs) when I retired, it was like, where's my rock? I don't have a rock. Right. I only have my friend DJ and he is a rock, but he's (laughs) a human being. (laughs) 
Well, I mean, elite sports is a strange bird, right? Because from the moment you go pro, you know you'll have to retire when you're still so young and perhaps not ready to say goodbye to a sport that has become inextricably linked to your identity. And on top of that, your body decides for you. So how does it feel to have your body give out when your mind is still in it? It's hard. I mean, it would have been difficult for me to just retire in general because I never wanted to let it go. So in some ways, you know, it was good that my body forced me to retire because Mm -hmm. I, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, still skiing forever. Um, And I think it helped me mentally put it behind me a little bit because I know the way my knees are, I mean, I hurt every day. There's no way I could. Still. Oh yeah. They're so swollen right now. I've been playing tennis and you know, it's not, that's not the best thing for me, but I feel like I've been waiting my whole life to play tennis. True adrenaline junkie. Gonna do it while I can. Before I get a knee replacement, I'm just gonna play as much as I can, you know? And what surprised you most about retiring? I thought I would have a lot more time. <laughs> really? I thought I would be, you know, a little bit more stationary and uh-huh. be able to spend more time with friends. And I feel like I'm spending the same if not less time with my friends than I was when I was still racing. I feel like it's nice because I can plan my schedule however I want. You know, I don't have this really structured, you know, schedule where I have to be in certain places at certain times. You know, I have the freedom to, you know, if I want to run off to a vacation, which I don't usually do, but I, I still can if I technically, if I wanted to, So that's kind of a nice thing. But yeah, I kind of just thought I would have a little bit more time. But again, to the point of perspective, you know, I feel like every day is an opportunity and I try not to let any opportunity pass me by. I mean, I think I should still probably get better at saying no. But, you know, I'm just one of those people that, you know, if I have to fly from L.A. to New York for one day, sure, bring it on. And how do you apply the discipline you've cultivated as a pro skier to your life now and your pursuits, professional, personal? I think it's really similar, you know, the structure of setting a goal and, you know, working hard to prepare yourself to reach that goal. And the challenge is different, but it's still a challenge. And the kind of the process is still the same. Mm -hmm. Everything really still applies to everything I do in life. You know, I think that's why a lot of athletes, especially female athletes, you know, who play, whether it's college sports or even high school sports are end up being, you know, um, much more successful is because we, we have the structure of, you know, working hard, goal setting, and really having the, the grit to kind of overcome you know, different challenges instead of, you know, quitting. It's, it's just a matter of mm-hmm. focusing more or, you know, changing your out perspective or, you know, changing how you approach things. There's always a way, you know, through the brick wall, whether it's around or under, or, you know, with a sledgehammer, there's always a way through it. Yeah. The sledgehammer is usually the way to go. <laughs> yeah. How are you spending your time now? Like, what are you up to? Who is Lindsay Vaughn now? Is she the same person as she was when she was skiing? I've always kind of been the same person. I think, you know, I'm still the Minnesota girl at heart. I always will be. I'm still the same person that loves a challenge and I love thrill and adrenaline. I think I'm more self-reflective than I was when I was a racer. I think I'm a better rounded person, I would say, than I was before because of, you know, the mental health work that I've done. And Mm. I think I'm healthier. I'm sleeping better. I'm Even though I'm in pain every day because of my knees, I still 
feel like I'm in great shape and, you know, I'm always on the go. I've still got three dogs. You know, I'm still live a crazy life. Yeah. I enjoy every day and I, I'm thankful for every opportunity. What drives you? I think right now what drives me is just building a life for myself and being able to do the things that I that I want to do. And I'm an adventurous person. And um, as you probably picked up on, I want to try different things and travel to different places. And I've traveled a lot of places in my life, but I actually haven't experienced many places. Mm-hmm. I've been around the world, but most of the time it's to a hotel room and to a mountain, but it's not you know, experiencing the culture to the degree that I want to. So my goal right now is just to work hard so that I can build a life for myself um, and for my family that, that I can do the things that I want to do. That, my friends, was the marvelously remarkable Lindsay Vaughn. You can follow her on Instagram at Lindsay Vaughn, V-O-N-N, and me at Gillian Sagansky. As always, I want to hear what you think of this episode and every episode, so slide into my DMs. Let me know your thoughts, questions, concerns, who you want to hear from next, all the things. And please do not forget to subscribe and give us a rating so we know that you're out there. Until next time.